In the beginning, God was nothingness. So he started making stuff. He made the dirt, he made the sky, he made the water, he made things that swim, things that slither, things with legs. I mean, God turned himself into a big shot. Then, in a couple of days or a couple of million years, he breathed life into man. And he's been sucking the life out of us ever since. Welcome to Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. So here we are, the Series 3 finale, and I am so glad to have had you all on this journey with me. This series turned into a real labour of love this year, which, let's face it, has been a bit shit all round. I'm saying that as well at a time where I'm recording prior to the result of the US election being known, but it will go out afterwards, so I'll sum up my thoughts on that by inserting my relevant thoughts right here. Oh, well thank god that's over. I was worried there for a second. Today though, we're looking back at the finale to Series 3, Series 3 Episode 8, Outer Time. Written by Tom Fontana, the episode was directed by Barbara Koppel. Born July 30th, 1946 and growing up on a vegetable farm in Scarsdale, New York, Barbara studied psychology at Northwestern University in Boston, Massachusetts, where she decided to submit a film rather than a term paper for a course in clinical psychology, and shortly afterwards attended Manhattan's School of Visual Arts, where she met documentarian brothers Albert and David Maisless, working as an assistant on 1969's Salesman, as well as the 1970 Rolling Stones documentary Gimme Shelter. Having subsequently worked on a number of documentaries, including working anonymously as an editor and producer as part of the Winter Film Collective on 1972's Winter Soldier, and launching her own production company, Cabin Creek Films, Barbara earned critical plaudits for her 1976 documentary, Harlan County, USA. Depicting a bitter miners' strike as well as Arnold Miller's Miners for Democracy movement, and a film which took four years to make and at a cost of over $200,000, funded mostly from a number of grants, as well as Barbara enduring personal financial demands. The film, however, was a success, earning Koppel the Best Documentary Feature at the 1977 Academy Awards, as well as awards from the Los Angeles Film Critics Association and the National Board of Review, and in 1990 was selected for preservation for its cultural, historical and aesthetic significance by the National Film Registry. Branching into TV direction with an episode of American Playhouse in the early 80s, Barbara wouldn't complete a full documentary feature again until 1990, where she directed and produced American Dream, 
detailing the unsuccessful strike against the Hormel Foods Corporation, which ran from 1985 to 1986. Another critical hit, the film earned Barbara her second Academy Award for Best Documentary, as well as the Blue Ribbon Award at the American Film Festival, and three awards at 1991's Sundance Film Festival, including the Grand Jury Prize where it tied with Jenny Livingston's Paris is Burning. Barbara followed this success with 1992's Beyond JFK, The Question of Conspiracy, and 1993's Fallen Champ, The Untold Story of Mike Tyson, while in 1994 she released two Century of Women documentaries. In 1997, Barbara directed the documentary Wild Man Blues, looking at Woody Allen's foray into jazz music, as well as directing her first episode of Homicide Life on the Street during the show's fifth season, and would return to direct an episode in each of the following two seasons of the show. In 1998, she directed the documentary Woodstock 94, looking back at the silver anniversary of the original music festival, before directing Here on Oz. Holding an 8.5 on IMDb, the episode was originally broadcast on September 1st, 1999, a day on which US Attorney General Janet Reno ordered US Marshals to the headquarters of the FBI to seize a videotape containing communications made during the 1993 Branch Davidians siege in Waco, Texas, a tape which the FBI previously denied existed. Columbia took delivery of six refurbished US military helicopters to use during the country's ongoing drug war, 22 MLB umpires found themselves out of work as fallout from the previous year's umpires union strike, while podcast favourite OJ Simpson was in trouble once again after the state of California filed a tax lien seeking $1.44 million in unpaid taxes, which the following year saw OJ uproot to Florida, where residents and pensions cannot be seized to pay off outstanding debts. "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The rats, on the other hand, is a whole different story." Kick off with Act 1, and it's Christmas time in Oz, as Augustus recites Clement Clark Moore's poem A Visit from St. Nicholas, first published anonymously in 1823, with Moore later claiming authorship in 1837. Another short introduction from Augustus, but we do get to see him in a great costume again, which is always fun, dressed here in his PJs waiting for Santa to arrive. He references the mouse, who quite famously wasn't staring, although a rat apparently was, as we open up the episode proper on Saeed in his cell in solitary, receiving a gift from an unknown guard in the form of a very alive rat, who jumps onto Saeed's chest as we cut to the hospital ward, and Gloria asking him what's wrong. Saeed tells her that he was bitten by a rat, and then holds up the mangled body of the rodent and thrusts it into her face, Gloria recoiling in terror and asking for it to be taken away. I love the idea that Saeed could only see one way out of this, which was to turn into a turtle savage and just annihilate this rat with his bare hands. The nurse takes it from Saeed and she holds the poor thing by the tail and places it in some sort of container, as we cut to M City where Ribado is recalling how Christmas Eve was always the best night of the year. He reminisces about how his house would be full of family and music and food, but M City by comparison is empty. Busmal is telling him that of course it is, it's because they're in the middle of a lockdown because the Aryans attack the Muslims, which he says in a proper bitchy, moany sort of way. I'm city is so empty. Sure it is. We're in the middle of a lockdown because the Aryans attack the Muslims. Put those claws away, Busmalis. Ribido mentions that he's getting a premonition, like how he would when God would speak to him, 
And Bruce Malice asks him about that as if it's the first time that he's hearing about it. It came across as a bit odd as these two are supposedly best friends. You would think that Rebido would have mentioned that at some point in the near two years that Bruce Malice has been his cellmate. Rebido says that God is talking to him and that he's been told to be afraid, but not very afraid, so so long as they keep the guard up they should be okay. We cut to a flashback slash dream sequence of Miguel's meeting with the Riveras. We know it's a dream sequence because it has this circular motion blur on it, the centre of the shot being clear and becoming more blurred towards the edges. We also see that Eugene has rolled snake eyes once more and his eyes are bleeding, with the blood leaking out of his sunglasses, which was a really cool visual, as Miguel jolts awake from the dream, even rubbing his own eyes to make sure they're still there. We get a clear shot of his hand tattoo here, which isn't a real tattoo, but the ones on the upper right arm, the ones with the peace sign and the yin and yang among others, those are Kirk's real tattoos. Much like Miguel's facial scar, this rose tattoo on his hand comes and goes, sometimes it's on his right hand, sometimes it's on his left. This thing is a continuity nightmare. Him getting it partway through the show isn't a problem. We saw Jazz giving a guy a prison tattoo previously, so it's feasible that Miguel could have gotten it after arriving, but if you're going to add something like this to a character, it needs to be consistent, and it can't be moving all over the place. It's like, I've got tattoos. If I woke up one morning and one of them had suddenly moved, I'd be wondering what the fuck's going on. Miguel meets up with Sister P for a follow-up to the interaction session, and she informs him that the Riveras have decided not to continue with the program. Trying to brush it off as no big thing, Miguel says that he had a lot of things that he wanted to say to Eugene, and Pete tries to get him to open up to her instead, but Miguel tells her that that isn't the same thing, which Pete says that she understands and that sometimes there are certain things you should only say to certain people. With that in mind, Pete reminds Miguel that his temporary stay in M-City hinged on telling Leo the identity of his daughter's rapist. She asks if Miguel is ready to give that information, but Miguel tells her no. Asking whether or not Miguel wants to be sent back to solitary, which he claims he doesn't, Pete advises him to take the day to not only pray to God, but to look within and make a choice. Wise words from Pete, but you do get the feeling that she is beginning to see Miguel as a bit of a lost cause, as there's only so many times that she can tell him to do the right thing before you end up sounding like a broken record. And that's where Pete differs to Ray, who has stood by Miguel for a much longer time. That's not to say that Pete has given up on Miguel, I don't think she'd ever give up on anyone. But there comes a time where she has to make a decision on what course of action to take regarding an inmate's care, and it seems like Miguel has resigned himself to heading back to solitary. Speaking of Ray, we cut to the cafeteria chapel where he's wrapping up the Christmas mass, which Miguel has been attending along with the other Catholic inmates. As they get up to leave, Ryan approaches him and informs Miguel that the other Latinos are on their way back to MC. He says that he noticed how Miguel walked away from the group when the drug bust was going down, and that Miguel should watch his ass because deserting his amigos like that isn't cool, conveniently leaving out the part about him being the one that caused the group to get busted in the first place, as Miguel tells him to leave him alone. So we see Carlo, Chico and El Cid arrive back in MC. And Carlo is talking about how he's getting a visit from his sister, because she knows how much he loves Christmas. But El Cid seems preoccupied with getting to Miguel to care about Carlo's family reunion. The trio confront Miguel and his pod, and we get a good close-up of Chico's lazy eye. Carlo asks why they got busted, yet Miguel went free. 
but El Cid tells them to back up and explains to Miguel that he has to forgive them because they've had a lot of time to wonder about things. He, on the other hand, doesn't wonder, and that he knows that Miguel isn't one of them and never will be. Much like with Sister Pete meeting with Keller last episode, Murphy is there tapping on the glass to save Miguel, asking why is it that he gets nervous whenever he sees the four of them huddle in a pod together, and tells whoever doesn't live there to vamoose, a word that you definitely don't hear often enough anymore. Chico and Carlo leave the pod as Murphy tells El Cid to take a break from being a tough guy because it's Christmas, and he then goes on his merry way. El Cid says that Murphy is right and tells Miguel to enjoy the day, because it will be his last and chops Miguel across the chest before leaving himself. Having made his decision, Miguel meets with Pete and McManus in his office. I made up my mind. I'm not going to tell the warden anything about his daughter's rape. Are you sure about this? Have you really thought it through? Yeah. I want to go back to solitary. Okay, I'll make the arrangements. Transfer you out of here first thing tomorrow. No, not tomorrow. I want to go right now. Transfers take time. Fuck that. I want to go right now. Why, Miguel? Are you in danger? Because if you are, we can put you in protective custody. What difference does it make? You know, alone is alone. It's the way I've been my whole fucking life. I just don't belong in the world. I belong by myself. Solitary. I really felt sorry for Sister Pete here. When Miguel says that he isn't going to give up the rapist, she just puts her head in her hand as if to say, Oh, for fuck's sake. She was so hopeful that Miguel had come to do the right thing, only to have her hopes dashed. But Manners also seems past the point of caring, simply saying that he'll sort the transfer rather than trying to talk Miguel round. And he's also quite blunt saying that transfers take time to sort, essentially telling Miguel that he'll have to take his chances with the Latinos until the paperwork goes through. Something that I noticed in this scene and then thought about from previous ones Miguel rarely stays in one spot when he's meeting with someone. Throughout his sessions with Sister Pete, he would often get up and walk around the room, and I mentioned in the previous episode about him having a restless leg during the meeting with the Riveras. In this scene, he seems to rock from side to side when he stands up, a trait which could be linked to a number of underlying issues. We've seen previously how Miguel is afraid of suffering a similar fate to his grandfather and succumbing to dementia, and according to a 2013 article by Sarah Stevenson, these behaviours could be linked to just that. According to that article, dementia makes it very difficult to process stimuli and new information, causing many people with Alzheimer's disease to become anxious. This anxiety often manifests itself in the form of restlessness, pacing, hand-wringing, and rocking. While I can't recall seeing Miguel wringing his hands, we have seen him act out those other behaviours previously. I'm not saying that Miguel is in the early stages of dementia, his behavioural habits are more likely caused by coming off his medication, as well as being anxious about reprisal from El Cid, but they could also be linked to something that has previously formed part of his story arc. Cut to Carlo sitting with Jorge Vasquez, played by Jose Hernandez Jr., who we've seen as a background character for a lot of the show, he's been around more or less since the start, 
And it's certainly recognisable with all that hair. He's kind of got a Sasquatch thing going on. Him being there does raise questions, though, and this is something that I was discussing with other users on the old subreddit not so long ago, about the rule of four that M-City supposedly has. McManus clearly said, Each group will have four prisoners living in M-City. No more, no less. So Jorge being there would mean that the Latinos currently have five members in M-City, unless Miguel isn't officially being counted as he's only there temporarily from solitary, which would put the Latinos back on four. But that in itself raises more questions, because if you watch that Series 2 scene back again, the one where they all come back to the unit after 10 months away, Jorge is there amongst the group when Miguel was still in M-City, meaning that the Latinos had five people in the unit even then. You then end up going down a bit of a rabbit hole when looking at the other members of the various groups. Like when Keller came in, was he part of the gays or was he part of the others? Because if he was in the others, then that puts them on five as well. The rest of the group being Augustus, Beecher, Boosmalis and Rebido. When Nikolai and Yuri come in, there's no Russian gang, or in the case of Nikolai, no Jewish gang either. So what category did they fall under? In storyline terms, it probably seemed like a good idea on paper, but when you put it into practice and from a writing perspective... It's a bit of a crutch that you need to overcome, as it would limit who you can have in the unit at any one time, and is probably the reason why it quietly gets dropped, and by the middle of Series 4, I'm pretty sure the rule is abandoned completely, certainly with the storyline that's forming with Adebisi, which I'll talk more about later on. Back to the business at hand though, as Carlo asks Murphy whether or not his sister has arrived yet. So this is a continuation of the story from the last episode, where Carlo's sister was leaving town for a new job, and she was made to leave him a letter, something which he never received after Lopresti threw it in the bin. Murphy tells him that there isn't anything scheduled, so Carlo asks him to check his list again, but Murphy says that he's already double-checked, and that his sister isn't coming, and compounds Carlo's misery by telling him that no one else in the family is either. Talk about kicking a guy when he's down. Seeing that Carlo has no place to be, Elsid approaches and tells Carlo that it's time, as Carlo and Chico make their way up to Miguel's pod, where he's gathering his toiletries getting ready to head back to solitary. Sensing impending doom, Miguel manoeuvres a shank in the waistband of his jeans, as Chico asks if Miguel is leaving them, and Carlo says that he wants to give him something before he goes, and lunges at Miguel. With the shank in hand, Miguel stabs Carlo in the stomach, causing a couple of seconds of slow motion, and then holds the shank to Chico's neck, reminding him of getting stabbed on his first day at Oz, and asks if Chico remembers, which kind of came across like Miguel was implying that Chico was the one that stabbed him, which is definitely not the case, so that was a little confusing. I suppose you could say it was more like Miguel was saying that he's a fighter and still alive after being stabbed, but it came across a bit clunky either way. Guards run in telling Miguel to drop the shank, and they drag him and Chico away, as Menia announces that Carlo is dead, and Murphy calls for another lockdown, El Cid sitting motionless as the other inmates head back to their pods. With Carlo dead, Chico probably heading off for some questioning, and Miguel definitely now off back to solitary, perhaps it's just dawned on El Cid that he has to spend Christmas with only Jorge for company. Miguel arrives back in solitary, Claire telling him season's greetings, fuckwad, and there's an air of calm acceptance from Miguel this time, compared to the outburst of aggression he had last time he was sent there. 
Back in the cafeteria, Pete approaches Ray, who's packing away the Christmas decorations, saying that with Miguel back in solitary, the circle is now complete. Pete apologises for excluding Ray from her and Miguel's sessions, and that maybe things would have worked out differently had he been there, but Ray doubts that. He packs away the baby Jesus and the three wise men, who he calls Larry, Curly and Moe, which is of course a Three Stooges reference, which got a laugh out of Pete, which was really nice to see. It's a rare moment of joy from her in this recent sea of misery. The Three Wise Men, also known as the Magi, which Ray references, have become known as Melchior, who hailed from Persia, Gaspar from India, although he was sometimes referred to as Casper or Jasper, and Arabia's Balthazar. But they were known as Melchior, Gafaspar and Bitasaria until the 8th century, where they appeared in the Excerpta Latina Babari, the Latin translation of 5th and 6th century Greek chronicles, written during the reign of Zeno and Anastasius. Ray asks Pete if she's certain about stopping being a nun, and even she doesn't seem so sure anymore, mentioning that getting out is as hard as getting in. Ray admits that he admires Pete's courage, but Pete tells him that sometimes it takes just as much courage to stay as it does to leave. But Ray says that if the Magi had stayed in Persia and followed the rules, they would never have seen God, as Pete tells him thank you and gives his cheek a little squeeze. We cut back to solitary where Leo, having been called at home, is heading down to Miguel's cell where he's finally ready to reveal the identity of the rapist. I got word at home that you wanted to see me. That you wanted to talk about Arthur's attacker. So you want to know who raped her? Right. Yes. Why? So they could be punished. What if I told you that the one who did it has already been punished? The name. I want the name. Carlo. Ricardo. He's been here the whole time. So Miguel exacting a measure of revenge on Leo for the way that he's treated him by withholding the information and letting the rapist be right under Leo's nose this whole time. Or was he? We'll find out in series 4, but this writes another chapter in the feud between Leo and Miguel. You see here that Miguel takes great joy and does an amazing maniacal laugh in getting one over on Leo by not revealing the rapist's identity until there's nothing that Leo can do about it. And it leaves the question hanging of how Leo is going to react to this going forward. Cut to the hospital where Gloria is with Margarita, who has arrived to identify Carlo's body as well as say her final goodbye, as Augustus serenades us with a rendition of God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen with an accompanying violinist to close out Act 1. The violin player here is played by Yura Lee, who has since become an accomplished violinist and viola player, having studied at Juilliard in New York, as well as the New England Conservatory and the Seattle Chamber Music Society. At the age of 12, Yura received the Debut Artist of the Year Award at NPR's Performance Today Awards, 
becoming the youngest person ever to do so. She's also appeared with major orchestras across the world, including the New York Philharmonic, the Chicago Symphony, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, as well as Philharmonic orchestras in Hong Kong, Monte Carlo, and Tokyo. I'm sorry about your brother. Did you know him? No. Carlo could never rest. Maybe finally now you'll get some. God bless ye, merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ the Savior was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. All tidings of comfort and joy, comfort and joy, all tidings of comfort and joy. So Act 2 gets underway with Sister Pete meeting with Shirley, who is explaining about how her execution, which was meant to be the last one of the millennium, has been delayed due to her pregnancy with Pete reckoning that Devlin is trying to sort out the ramifications of executing a woman who fell pregnant while incarcerated. She asks if Shirley knows the identity of the father, Shirley saying of course she does, but she's keeping her lips sealed. Pete says that it's going to be an easy list to pare down, but Shirley tells her that who the father is isn't important, and asks her to go to Devlin and ask for the execution to be carried out as planned. Standing for a moment in stunned silence, Pete asks Shirley if she truly wants to die, Shirley saying that she has to, and finally admits to having killed her daughter, which even seems to knock her back slightly, Shirley saying that sometimes things aren't real until you say them out loud. Shirley tells Pete that when her daughter was born, she was a bundle of joy, but little by little she began to see that something wasn't quite right, something inhuman about her, even describing it as otherworldly. Shirley claimed that on occasion she would see flashes of fire about her daughter's bassinet, that she'd sometimes speak in tongues, and one time even made a plate levitate, and it was at that point Shirley knew that her daughter was possessed by the devil. Pete, nodding in gentle agreement as if to say, okay, you've gone a bit mad, asks whether or not Shirley has ever spoken to anyone about this before, but Shirley says that people would have thought she was crazy and that she knew that the only way to save herself and her daughter was to commit suicide. She says, however, that whenever she tried, she didn't see the devil, only her daughter's sweet face, and we see footage from Shirley's crime flashback once again, as she explains about driving the car into the lake, but she admits that she half expected to see her daughter rise from the water on Lucifer's back. The scene closes with Pete saying that she'll see what she can do, as Shirley holds her by the hand telling her God bless you. Shirley isn't the first person to think that they have a family member who's possessed. In the early 19th century in Ireland, it wasn't Satan, but rather fairies that were possessing the nation's children, often referred to as the changelings, who could simply be beaten out of the child, with Angela Burke of the National University of Ireland writing in her book The Burning of Bridget Cleary about how suspected children were placed on hot shovels, and cites a case from 1828 of a boy being drowned in order to exercise the spirits within. 
Another batshit method employed to expel demons, and probably the most well known, is that of an exorcism, with the Vatican, who have to sanction for one to be carried out, first publishing guidelines on how to perform them in 1614, something which went unrevised for nearly 400 years. Far from containing spinning heads, levitating bodies or poltergeists as depicted in Hollywood movies, Michael Cuneo wrote in his 2001 book American Exorcism Expelling Demons in the Land of Plenty, for which he attended approximately 50 exorcisms, about how he saw nothing that would be considered supernatural. All he saw was the odd bit of swearing, spitting and occasional vomiting. In more recent years, Edda Guzman Rodriguez was convicted in 2013 of the death of a two-year-old, known only as Jocelyn, following a 2011 exorcism in Virginia, with police reports detailing a scene containing several people holding Bibles outside of the home, and a child's body wrapped in a blanket surrounded by Bibles. In the UK, a 2019 article by the Huffington Post detailed an 11% rise in potential abuse cases believed to be connected to religious beliefs such as voodoo, witchcraft and demonic possession, with over 1,600 cases reported in England between 2017 and 2018. Cut to Leo's office, where Devlin arrives saying that he's hosting a party at the Governor's Mansion in a few hours for nearly 400 guests, so he needs them to cut to the chase about Shirley. Leo tells him that Shirley wants to be executed as planned, which Devlin seems thrilled at, saying that that solves all of his problems, but Pete informs him of a little snag in the proceedings, saying Shirley's insane. Devlin says, well, yeah, of course she is, she drowned a daughter, but Pete doesn't think that Shirley should be on death row, but should be moved to the state asylum. Not wanting to go against Shirley's wishes, Devlin says, who are we to stand in her way if she wants to die? But Pete tells him that Shirley isn't fit to make that decision, and she's also pregnant, and that Devlin will be committing two murders if he proceeds with the execution, one being Shirley, and the other her unborn child. Seeing sense, or more likely realising that Pete is right, Devlin instructs Leo to transfer Shirley from death row, and goes to leave. But before he does, he tells Leo that he wants the lockdown ended. Leo protests, saying that they don't have the situation under control yet, but Devlin says it's Christmas, and he's getting heat from the Cardinal, who just by chance is attending the party at the mansion, and tells him to let the inmates out as he leaves. Assuming that Oz is indeed set in New York State, which is what I've gone with for the run of the podcast, and depending on the exact location of the prison, Devlin has had a hell of a drive to have this very short meeting, quite why he couldn't just do this over the phone is anyone's guess. Because the New York State Executive Mansion the official residence of the Governor of New York, is located in Albany, housed in 9.9 acres of grounds next to Lincoln Park. And according to Ellen Goodman's Elegance in Dedham, was staffed by inmates from the state's prison system during the 1960s, during the governorship of Nelson Rockefeller. With the inmates out of their pod, Devlin gives an address on the TV, commuting Shirley's sentence to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole but stipulates that this does not affect his support of the death penalty. Cut to death row where Shirley, having been changed into a lovely orange jumpsuit, says that Pete betrayed her, but Pete claims that she's protecting both Shirley and her child, which makes Shirley claim she'll seek an abortion, which is legal in New York State, but if she isn't granted one, she'll kill the child herself, referring to it as this monster inside of me. Pete tells her that she's been transferred to the Connolly Institute, 
which I think is the first mention for that on the show, where Shirley will be on 24-hour supervision as Shirley is taken away shouting that next year, Pete will be bowing before Satan, claiming that the next millennium belongs to him, and ramps up the crazy by calling Satan the father and herself the virgin mother as we fade to black. This escalated quickly, shall we say. We've seen before that Shirley has pictures of Christ around a room, and she's always spoken with that southern drawl, indicating that she probably comes from the Bible Belt of America's southern states. But there's never been any previous indication of any kind of delusional psychosis from her. She's had the odd moment where she didn't do something out of the ordinary, like when she exposed herself to Timmy Kirk. But more often than not, she's been polite when she's met with staff, some might even say quite charming. But here, this got ramped up very quickly. She's clearly a cold, disturbed human being, particularly having taken so long to admit that she did kill a daughter. But to try and angle that as if she is in some way doing God's will by killing this so-called demon inside of a daughter, it all came about very quickly. Did it work? I'm kind of on the fence about it, if I'm totally honest. It hasn't been developed very well, but it does at least give her a unique trait, other than being the only female inmate, which separates her from everyone else at Oz. That's surely done with for this series, though, as we move into Beecher's portion of the episode, and we see a flashback of the mass brawl in the gym from the last episode, Keller and Amid being released from solitary, and we also see Schillinger, Beecher and Nikolai being released from the hospital and escorted back to their respective units. Saeed is staying in the hospital for now, and we see that Poet and Junior are still in there too and still wrapped in their bandages. Back in M-City, Beecher leaves a meeting with McManus and talks to Keller from across the balcony. There's a fair bit of awkward silence as Keller asks Beecher if he's okay, with Beecher admitting that he's alive thanks to Keller. As Keller starts to leave, which would have been awkward as he walks in the direction that only leads to a wall, Beecher tells him that he's asked McManus to allow them to share a pod again. The symbolic M-City gap now seemingly done away with, as we cut to Schillinger and Lepresti in Unit B. Schillinger heads back to his cell as Lepresti heads to the guard's office, where Diane is watching over things. She sarcastically rejoices that Schillinger's back, Lepresti saying he's not such a bad guy, and the look from Diane is fucking priceless. She says so much with just a glare. She asks what drugs he's on as Lepresti says that Schillinger is a shitload better than them referring to the black inmates on the unit. Thankfully, McManus turns up to put an end to this awkward conversation, offering to take Diane to lunch. Diane's still not quite believing what Lepresti has just said, and as they leave, there's a stare-down between McManus and Kenny. You'd think McManus wouldn't be allowed into the unit currently housing his sexual harassment accuser, but then again, sometimes you've got to look the other way in order to keep the story moving. Cut to the staff room where McManus and Diane are eating lunch, and McManus is saying that the problem with the accusation from Kenny is that he can't prove or disprove anything. It just hangs there, with Diane saying that it becomes its own reality. Always one for good timing, Claire enters the staff room to have some lunch of her own, skipping the nutritious portions and going straight to the cream puff. She looks across to McManus, insinuating that he's one also, 
And Cream Puff seems to be a very American insult, a particular favourite of former NFL defensive tackle Steve Mongo McMichael, and the UK or European equivalent would be like calling someone a shoe pastry or a profiterole. Mamanis takes the insult on the chin, but Diane isn't standing for Claire's taunting anymore and smacks Claire in the face. Claire fights back as McManus tries to separate them, but he's not having much luck, eventually calling on Dagnasty to help out, who seem quite happy to just sit there watching the fight play out. In all fairness, he's refereed quite a few fights this series, so he's probably had quite enough, although he has got one more to go this episode. Flash cuts to the hospital ward, where Diane is having some treatment to her nose and forearm, and Claire's having her blood pressure taken. Why? <laughs> this was Catfight Central. She's hardly been put through the ringer. Leo enters and asks what the hell's going on. McManus explaining that Diane and Claire got into a fight over him. And before Leo starts, he tells him that he doesn't want to hear it. I don't want to hear any of your sanctimonious bullshit. Leo says that he doesn't care what McManus does or doesn't want to hear. And that it's time that McManus started to take responsibility for his actions. Or as he puts it, the shitstorms that McManus creates. McManus retorts saying that's all he ever does, and all that he's ever asked for is a little support. Leo claims that he's given plenty, but McManus thinks otherwise, saying that Leo took Kenny's side the same way that he took Augustus' side, as well as Saeed's and Clayton's. Sensing a pattern, held by McManus saying all the brothers, Leo questions whether or not McManus thinks he does that because they're black. McManus telling Leo to read the scorecard and to add it up for himself his voice breaking as he becomes more and more upset. Leo and McManus nearly come to blows themselves, but Gloria runs in and tells them to stop acting like a pair of twats, and that everyone is listening, a small crowd having gathered outside the hospital office, as the scene closes with the two men standing in silence. Cut to Gloria with Poet and Junior, who after three episodes are finally getting their bandages removed. She says that while they've recovered enough for this, there is still some damage to their skin pigmentation, which should return to normal in around 6-12 months. A nurse cuts Poet's bandages away as Junior, with a reaction that I couldn't possibly do justice, tells him, Damn! as Poet checks himself out in a mirror, claiming that he might actually be able to get a cab now. The makeup on Poet and Junior... It's not great, is it? Looks like they've just slapped a load of foundation on, but it does still look better than Metzger's greyface. The two of them head back to Unit B, presumably having been moved out of M-City to avoid any further conflict with Adebisi, and they meet up with Kenny. He tells them that Adebisi has a plan, and they're far from thrilled to be hearing about it, which is fair enough considering what happened to them, Poet saying that Adebisi is going to pay for what he did. Kenny agrees with him, and that he's with him on that, but they'll deal with that another time. For now, though, he needs them to listen to the plan as we head back to M-City, where Adabizi is talking with Hamid, and the two even embrace each other as McManus and Murphy look on nervously. Cut to an Augustus vignette where we see him wearing a boxing robe that Ivan Drago would have been proud of, and saying that in England, the day after Christmas is called Boxing Day, although he's not exactly sure why, and that every day in Oz is kind of a boxing day, as he then goes to work on the speed bag. Well, Augustus, being from England means that I can tell you exactly why it's called Boxing Day. Far from being linked directly to the sweet science, Boxing Day traditionally derives from the act of the rich boxing up gifts to give to the poor, and while the exact time of its origin is unknown, 
The earliest known mention of the holiday appeared in the 1830s during the reign of Queen Victoria. Since 1871, the day has been a bank holiday in the UK, although it wasn't specified as a bank holiday in Scotland until 1974. The holiday is also observed in the majority of countries that made up the British Empire, including Hong Kong, where it's a public holiday, New Zealand, where it's a statutory holiday, Australia, where it's celebrated in all jurisdictions except South Australia, where they celebrate Proclamation Day on the first weekday after Christmas, and it's also a public holiday in Singapore, Nigeria, South Africa, and Trinidad and Tobago. In Canada, Le Demois de Noël is a federal holiday, meaning that government offices as well as banks and post offices are closed for the day, and while not officially observed in the US, on December 5th, 1996, William F. Weld, the governor of Massachusetts, declared December 26th as Boxing Day in the state in an effort to transport the English tradition to the United States following a campaign from British expats, although the day isn't classed as a public holiday. The day is also traditionally associated with retailers beginning a sale period, although the rise of Black Friday in the 2010s has led to a decline in Boxing Day sale numbers. In sport, the UK tends to hold a full fixture list for top flight football divisions as well as horse racing meetings, including the King George VI Chase at Kempton Park, while in New Zealand and South Africa, cricket test matches have become a Boxing Day staple, as well as in Australia, where they also staged the Sydney to Hobart yacht race. December 26th typically also means the start of the International Ice Hockey Federation's World Junior Championships, while in Commonwealth nations, particularly the African nations of Malawi, Ghana and Tanzania, they do actually hold professional boxing contests, as do Italy and Guyana. All of this talk of boxing transitions nicely, almost like it was written that way, into the next part of the episode, where Ryan heads up to talk with Murphy, having heard a rumour about Leo looking to cancel the final of the boxing tournament. But Murphy corrects him, saying that it's been postponed indefinitely, and that he hasn't got time for Ryan's complaining, and that life is full of disappointments. A concept that Ryan should have managed to grasp by now. Ryan meets up to talk with Hamid, and both men head to meet with Leo to try and change his mind. You got two minutes. Warden, people have been looking forward to this final doubt for months. If you postpone this, there will be unrest. I know. But last week we had a major confrontation between the Muslims and the Aryans, which you were part of. Schillinger attacked Saeed first. Look, I don't want to get into who's responsible. You're all fucking responsible. Schillinger attacked Beecher too, and he's white. <sighs> you trying to tell me it had nothing to do with race? Nothing? No. But there were other things at play. This is just two fighters fighting. Right, Hamid? The best man should win. All right. I'll let the bout take place. But without an audience. What? Just the fighters, the sidemen, the referee, and the judges. Mm -mm, no way. Take a leave it, gentlemen. We see training footage for both men, along with words of encouragement from their fellow inmates, before cutting to Ryan trying to spike Hamid's water with a chloral hydrate, having done a deal with who I believe is Liam Meany to get it from the hospital now that Kudney's dead. His plan goes awry though when Nikolai makes inquiries to Murphy about Ryan's whereabouts, asking whether or not Murphy finds it funny that Ryan always asks for permission to go to the gym before Cyril fights. Murphy asks Nikolai why that's funny, 
but Nikolai asks for forgiveness and that Russians are suspicious of everyone. Ever the detective, Murphy heads down to the gym to investigate Nikolai's cryptic accusation and catches Ryan red-handed, placing the chloral hydrate into a mead's water bottle. Ryan tries to justify his actions, saying that he had to make sure that Cyril didn't get hurt and that he had to show everyone else that the Irish still matter. But Murphy says that if this got out, they'd have another riot on their hands. Ryan tries to talk Murphy round and that maybe you never saw me, maybe you never came in here. But Murphy isn't playing games and tells Ryan that he can wave the flag of Ireland all he wants, it doesn't change the fact that he caught him. Ryan asks what happens next, with Murphy saying that the fight goes on as planned, fair and square, and that Cyril will either win or lose by his own hands. The one thing that Ryan does have going for him is that Murphy is willing to keep finding him cheating a secret for now, but if he finds out that Ryan has messed with a mead, then he'll transfer him to solitary. Having little faith in his brother, Ryan asks how Cyril is supposed to beat Hamid, but Murphy tells him that isn't his problem, and the two leave the gym. I really liked this scene, and I really like Sean Murphy as a character, and I got the feeling from this scene that while he may be one of McManus' most loyal friends, he's actually much more like Leo in that he more often than not tries to do the right thing, but is willing to overlook certain things for the greater good. He could have quite easily turned Ryan in, having discovered that Ryan, and by proxy Cyril, have cheated their way to the championship fight, but he's mentioned before about understanding the O'Reilly brothers' upbringing and his understanding to Ryan's motivations. Ultimately though, he understands the ramifications of turning Ryan in and what that will cause in the long run, and that the prison probably wouldn't survive had another riot taken place, so in order to keep an element of peace intact, he's going to let the fight play out as it should, and the best man will win on the day. Back in M-City, Cyril is shadowboxing in his pod, saying that he feels great and ready for the upcoming bout, but Ryan tells him that the other guys that he's fought were kinda pussies, and that Hamid is the real deal and tough. Cyril says that he's tough too, but Ryan tells him that he's gonna need to be extra special in order to win, as Cyril throws a jerky punch Ryan's way. He's ready and psyched up for this fight, no doubt about it. Before that though, Ryan has a little surprise for his brother in the form of a visit from their dad, Seamus, played by Kevin Conway. Born May 29th, 1942 in Harlem, New York, Kevin graduated from Brooklyn's Bishop Lachlan High School in 1959, after which he spent a spell in the US Navy before taking a job at IBM, starting out in the mailroom before working up to a sales position. Leaving his job at IBM to pursue acting at the age of 24, earning his craft at both the HB studio in Greenwich Village as well as the dramatic workshop at Carnegie Hall, Kevin made his Broadway debut in 1969 appearing in Arthur Coppett's Indians, and made his TV acting debut in an episode of The Doctors in 1970, as well as The World Apart and Believe in Me. In 1971, Kevin made his off-Broadway stage debut, appearing in a long-running revival of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest directed by Lee Sankovich, playing the lead role of Randall Patrick McMurphy, and also starring alongside Danny DeVito as Martini, a role Mr. DeVito would reprise in the 1975 film adaptation. Kevin's other off-Broadway credits include appearances in One for the Road and When You Coming Back Red Rider, for which he received a Drama Desk Award in 1974, Clive Burns of the New York Times writing, Mr. Conway lights up the stage with his half-amused, 
half-vicious personification. Rarely can alienation have been exposed so mercilessly and so understandingly. That same year he appeared on Broadway in Of Mice and Men at the Brooks Atkinson Theatre, playing the role of George Milton alongside James L. Jones as Lenny Small, a production in which Oz alumni Frankie Faison was Jones' understudy. Kevin's first major role on film came in 1972 for the George Roy Hill-directed Slaughterhouse Five, where he appeared as Roland Weary, and that same year appeared in Portnoy's Complaint, playing the part of Smolker. In 1978, Kevin appeared as Vince Doyle in Norman Jewison's F.I.S.T. alongside Sylvester Stallone, Rod Steiger and Peter Boyle, and with Stallone again that same year in Paradise Alley, a film which Stallone also wrote and directed. Speaking of Stallone's suggestion of getting an eagle tattooed on his forehead for the film, Kevin told People magazine, I wasn't crazy about the idea. A thing like that could cut down your employment opportunities. Kevin returned to the Broadway stage in 1979, appearing from April to October as Frederick Treves in The Elephant Man at the Boo Theatre. A world away from his previous roles, Kevin described the role to the New York Times as much more uptight than a modern character. He's a guy who tends to sit on his emotions, whereas my instinct is to let them go. Kevin would reprise the role of Frederick Treves for a TV movie adaptation of The Elephant Man in 1982 and the following year appeared in the TV movie Rage of Angels, as well as the TV series The Firm, while on film he appeared in 1984's Flashpoint, as well as Funny Farm and Homeboy, as well as directing an off-Broadway production of Other People's Money in 1989, and in 1990 appeared in and directed the independent film The Sun and the Moon. Along with credits on TV for shows such as Miami Vice, The Equalizer and The Beachcombers, Kevin appeared in Star Trek The Next Generation in 1993, appearing as Carlos in the episode Rightful Air during the show's sixth season, while in 1995 he had recurring roles in both New York News and Streets of Laredo, appearing alongside James Garner, Randy Quaid and George Carlin. Also in 1995, Kevin returned to the Broadway stage appearing in On the Waterfront, an adaptation of the 1954 movie at the Brooks Atkinson Theatre. Although the show closed quickly, running for only eight performances, Kevin received praise from New York Times critic Vince Canby, who described Kevin's portrayal as easily the most riveting contribution in the show's otherwise dire review. On TV in 1995, Kevin provided the vocal to the control voice in Showtime's revival of The Outer Limits, as well as receiving credits in 1998 on TV for Jag and Michael Hayes, both airing on CBS, on film for Mercury Rising, while in 1999 he appeared in the movie The Confession, before appearing here on Oz. So we go to the visiting room where Seamus, who looks like he's come from a shift working down on the docks, is kicking the shit out of one of the vending machines, claiming it's stolen his money as Ryan and Cyril arrive. The atmosphere is frosty to say the least, Seamus having been brought down there on the premise of it being an urgent situation, but he says that he doesn't see anybody bleeding. Ryan makes the point that he's been in Oz for over three years, yet his dad has never visited. Seamus saying, what's to see? And that he knows how things are, having spent time inside himself. Cyril proudly tells his dad that he's been boxing, but Seamus dismisses it, saying that he thought Oz had balls. Ryan calls him out on why he's constantly belittling them, but Seamus tells him to wind his neck in, and that he gave them a good home and life, only for them to fuck it up by being a couple of wise-ass punks drinking and whoring just like their mum, whom he calls a bitch. 
That upsets Cyril, who tells Seamus to shut up, but he soon feels the back of Seamus' hand and runs away crying. Before he goes after his brother, Ryan tells his dad thanks and that he came through for them just like always. So we've had allusions to the O'Reilly's dad before and the shoddy upbringing he provided, but this is the first time that we've seen him on screen and they do play up the bad dad vibes with Seamus as he's pretty standoffish and distant from his kids, and he also looks like he'd smell a bins. While we will see him on the show again, it won't be for quite some time, but at least we've been able to put a face to the stories we've heard about him at last. Cut to the cafeteria boxing arena, where, much like the majority of sport in 2020, is taking place behind closed doors. And while Leo said there wouldn't be an audience, he is there with McManus and Murphy, which is fair enough, I suppose, considering that the finalists are both M-City guys. Unsurprisingly, Hamid gains the early advantage and puts Cyril down on the canvas following a good two-punch combo, but Cyril makes it to his feet. It's not long until he's down a second time, but again, he makes it to his feet. Hamid backs Cyril up in the corner looking to finish the fight, but the bell rings to save Cyril and end a very one-sided opening round as both men take their stools. Cyril tells Ryan that he wants to stop, but Ryan tells him no, and to not think of Hamid as himself, but to visualise him as his dad. The second round gets underway with a cagey start from both men, but Cyril gains the upper hand by listening to Ryan's shouts of dad as he pounds the mat. And we also see a flashback, with its lovely green colour filter, showing Seamus beating the boy's mum and an incident where a young Ryan spills some milk. These flashbacks are exactly the ammo needed to fire Cyril up, who lands a strong uppercut, sending Hamid stumbling back to the ropes. Hamid's corner call for him to clinch, but Cyril is unloading heavy shots to Hamid's midsection before landing an almighty right hand, remembering his dad doing the same to him in the process, which puts Hamid down on the mat out cold as Cyril is declared the winner. Cyril revels in his victory, calling himself the champ as Ryan embraces him, saying, you did it, you fucking did it. But the adulation is short-lived as Amid remains on the canvas, his only movement coming in the form of his twitching right foot, with Murphy calling for a doctor as Cyril asks what's going on. Back in M-City, Cyril is beginning to realise that he's hurt Amid, but Ryan tells him that he'll be fine. He asks Ryan a couple of times why he made him hurt Amid, but Ryan tells him repeatedly to get ready for bed. Cyril demands an answer though, asking why Ryan made him think of their dad and what he did to their mum, with Ryan finally snapping at him telling him that it was to help him survive. Asking whether or not Cyril wants the truth, Ryan tells him that Amid is brain damaged, and that you could tell by the way he went down, his eyes were vacant. Cyril asks if he's made Hamid just like himself, but Ryan tells him no, he's made him worse. This seems to have an almost Popeye-like effect on Cyril as he grabs Ryan by the arm, turning him round and hitting him with a massive right hand, and backing Ryan against the wall, hitting him with more shots. Cyril lets out a cry akin to a wounded animal before nailing Ryan one last time before sitting down on his bunk, crying his eyes out. Ryan, sporting a bloody lip, sits down next to him and holds his brother close. We've seen moments of dissension between the brothers before, but not to this level. Ryan always claims to have his brother's well-being in mind, which is true to a certain degree, but we all know that deep down he is a conniving bastard who mainly looks out for himself. 
Cut to Leo's office where he and McManus are meeting with Hamid's wife, Sadia, played by Michael Hyatt. Born in Birmingham, England, Michael moved to the US at the age of 10 with her Jamaican parents, living at times in Maryland as well as Washington DC. Studying acting, first earning an undergraduate degree at Howard University before continuing at New York University's Titch School of the Arts, where she earned a master's, Michael made her Broadway debut in the critically acclaimed Ragtime at the Ford Center for the Performing Arts. Michael's appearances on TV and film prior to this were limited to just three appearances, with an uncredited appearance in 1995's New Jersey Drive, directed by Oz alumni Nick Gomez, an appearance in the second season of ABC's Dharma and Greg, and 1999's Pushing Tin before appearing here on Oz. She asks if there is any chance of Amid coming out of his coma, Mamana saying that a specialist from Benchley Memorial has verified Gloria's diagnosis, and that Hamid is irreversibly brain-dead, Leo adding that he's been kept alive by a life support machine. Sadia says that that's not what Hamid would want, and asks for him to be taken off. Unfortunately, they can't do that, Leo explaining that state law requires them to continue with treatment. Sadia protests, saying that she's his wife, but McManus explains that in this case, with Amid being an inmate, her wishes and those of Amid himself won't be taken into consideration. Segwaying into a different topic, Sadia asks McManus about the sexual harassment allegation, and says to Leo that she doesn't want McManus present. Rather than cause any further issue, McManus leaves, telling us that he's sorry for what's happened, but she says that he's going to be more than sorry. She threatens to sue the prison as Leo, feeling the weight of the world on his shoulders, lets out a groan as she leaves, and we finish Act 2 on a shot of Sadia by her husband's bedside, Saeed approaching to comfort her, and ending the scene by saying a prayer for Hamid and placing his kufi at Hamid's head. I intend to sue this prison. First, to get Hamid off life support, and second, for negligence, for allowing this boxing match to happen at all. Mrs. Cohen, your husband knew the risk. He agreed voluntarily. He pushed for the fight. So you say. We'll let a jury decide what's true. gets underway with Augustus talking about how everybody is worried about the Y2K problem that was set to send the world into total meltdown, one of the supposed worries being that prison doors will automatically open, releasing untold horrors on the public. I remember all of this stuff going down. I was 15 at the time, and everyone was like, ooh, bad shit's gonna happen at the stroke of midnight, nothing's gonna work, all because somebody didn't program it properly, and lo and behold, nothing happened. Planes didn't fall from the sky, no atomic bombs set themselves off, everything just went about its day like any other, showing that people can really be a bunch of gullible idiots at times. 
trying to make the best of the situation, assuming that everything does in fact revert back to 1900, Augustus, dressed as one of the three wise men, proposes a do-over of the whole century, saying that they didn't do such a hot job the first time round, and honestly, if that offer was on the table, I'd probably take it. Christ, even if the offer was just to go back four or five years and have that as a do-over, I'd take it. Flash cut to M-City, where we see some self-imposed segregation going on with the black inmates set at one table, while the white inmates are all gathered around their own. The only inmates not taking part in this are Saeed and Beecher, who are sat over to one side, looking on at the rest of the inmates. Saeed asks Beecher, can you smell that? And rather than having just done a massive fart, which, let's be honest, would have been much funnier if a little out of character, he tells Beecher that he can smell hatred in the air. Beecher points out that that's just like any other day in Oz, but Saeed thinks that this is much worse, as he goes around the room noting how former enemies are now seemingly allies, and that he admits that he's very afraid of what might happen, a complete 180 from where Saeed has been previously on the show. Even when the riot was in full swing, he never showed fear like how he is here. Beecher tells him if he's afraid, then to do something about it, but Saeed says that he can't because of all the deaths in the riot three years earlier and how he can finally accept his guilt in that, but he doesn't want any part of this. We get a quick go-around of the key players, along with some very 90s colour inversion, before cutting to the kitchen where Kenny is threatening Cyril for what he did to her mead, but Ryan tells him to back off, calling it an accident. They get separated, Ryan getting in the great line, feeling tall little man, before we move over to Adebisi approaching Clayton, who's staring at the spot where his father died. For some reason, he seems to have decided that the best position to stand in for doing this is by having one foot up on the bench. Not really sure that's helping there. Adebisi tells him that his father was also killed in this room, which isn't true, but it wasn't far away, I suppose, saying that in Jara he found his guide who showed him his life, his soul, his heritage, and that he was cut down like an animal. Clayton gets in his face, telling him to walk away, but Adebisi tells him to embrace the anger, saying that these things are no coincidence, and that he knows who killed Clayton's father. Sounding like a 2020 conspiracy nut, Adebisi says that the answers that Ray has given Clayton are the answers they want him to hear, and that he's asked around and discovered the truth, asking whose prints were on the shank, as we see a replay of the stabbing of Sam. He tells Clayton that he needs to wise up, calling him his brother, and places his hand over Clayton's heart, saying that he'll watch his if Clayton watches Adebisi's. They're interrupted by Chucky, who calls for Adebisi to get to work, but it's clear that Adebisi has got through to Clayton to a certain degree. Brilliant seeing this, and Adewale does all the heavy lifting in it, but it really hammers home how strong a leader Adebisi is becoming. He referred to himself last episode as the king, which I did downplay a little, but it's hard to argue that he isn't, at the very least, in the ascendancy. He's already managed to forge an alliance with the Muslims, first with Amid and now seemingly with Arif, who has assumed the leadership, as well as a number of other black inmates, but doing the same to someone on the staff side, although he hasn't fully managed it yet, takes a huge amount of influence to pull off, something which the homeboys as a gang have been lacking for quite some time. Cut to the changing rooms where Claire and Lepresti are changing, Lepresti saying that he wished he could have been there to see Amid go down. 
We've seen that Lopresti has a loose affiliation with the Aryans, but in the last few episodes, his racist characteristics have really been ramped up, partly down to the introduction of this race war storyline. Before that, he was just a bit of a dick, but as I alluded to previously, he's become the main go-to villain in the absence of a Karl Metzger-type figure. Claire gets some comments of her own in, going down the blasphemous route rather than the racist, as Clayton arrives at his locker having heard what they were saying. He tells them fuck you both before removing his towel, and yep, there's all of Seth Gilliam for you to see. That's also something that seems to have increased exponentially during this third series. There's a lot more dicks on show than before. Cut to M-City where Chucky, El Cid and Anabizi are having a meeting. Chucky says that he's concerned about the agitation in M-City since the boxing concluded. El Cid agreeing with him, saying that he's hearing a lot of shit coming out of Adebisi's mouth. While he isn't implying that black people haven't been fucked with, he says that the noises that Adebisi's making are likely to mess things up for all of them, Chucky adding that they can't move tits if they're in 24-7 lockdown, but Adebisi says that there are more important things than both tits and money, and then leaves the pod. El Cid questions what could be more important than money, and that Adebisi is in his loco mode again, which was a really good line. Cut to the kitchen where Schillinger approaches a table containing Chucky, Nikolai, Rebido, Beecher, Keller and Jazz. He says that the black inmates are up to something, Keller saying that they're always up to something and so is Schillinger, so he doesn't seem to be buying whatever Schillinger is proposing. Schillinger admits that there's been a lot happened between them over the years, but for now, they need to put that aside and be bound by the one thing that joins them, their skin colour. Beecher rightly says that he isn't going to listen to this shit and tells Keller to come with him, but Keller wants to hear what Schillinger has to say. Nikolai points out that he's a white Russian, not literally of course, but also a Jew and asks if Schillinger accepts him as part of his group. Schillinger, eventually and perhaps begrudgingly, tells him yes, which is the straw that breaks the camel's back for Beecher, who storms off, but at least he throws his mess away before doing so. Over at the serving counter, Kenny hands Augustus a specially prepared lunch. Taking the meal cautiously, Augustus asks what's going on with Kenny, saying that first he's been buddies with Adebisi and now he's been nice to him, thinking it odd seeing as Kenny has been after him ever since Malcolm Coyle got killed. Kenny, however, calls that history and that he's living in the now, and that right now, if they don't get together, they're going to die apart, which was strangely poetic for Kenny, but I quite liked it. We then get something which we haven't had for quite some time on the show, two conversations going on at the same time, with the camera cutting between the two. On one side, Adebisi is talking with Arif, while in his office, McManus is with Murphy. All is going well. Things are bad. So what do we do next? So what do we do? We wait. We act first. An opportunity will arise. The first opportunity, we let everyone know that we're still in charge. Are you sure? I don't know. Yes. Trust me. Down on the floor, the inmates are receiving their mail, Augustus picking up his copy of Hustler magazine. But he's pissed off that all the pages are folded, and that as he pays top dollar for it, he doesn't want to get it and have the pages be stuck together. Timeline shattering issue of Hustler right here, as the one that Augustus has here is the holiday issue. The 1998 holiday issue, which if you look at it in terms of the timeline, has taken the better part of a year to actually arrive. 
Obviously, this is to do with the show being filmed earlier in the year before the Hustler holiday issue for 1999 will have gone to print. So what can Augustus expect from his one-year-old Hustler magazine? Well, thanks to WonderClub.com, I can tell you that this issue had articles such as Bisex Legally, The Feminist Struggle for Your Right to Hookers, Grow Old, Stay Hard, Hustler's Guide to Aging Manfully, whatever the hell that means, 10 Sex Crimes That Shocked Our Modern World, 26 Cartoons That Break the Taste Barrier, as well as what it claims to be an unbiased review of men's magazines. It also came with covers supposedly too hot for the lawyers to handle, as well as containing a ballot where you could vote for Beaver of the Year. The cover model is known simply as Sheena, and Augustus wasn't kidding when he said that he paid top dollar, because as I zoom in on this barcode, it shows a price of $6.99, which adjusted for inflation, works out around $11.15 in today's money. I know the question you're all wondering though, Neil, what was in 1999's holiday issue? With Tia on the cover, who's described as a diddler on the roof, diddler seemingly meaning something very different in the US, and with a price increase to $7.99, Augustus would have been treated to articles such as Buy a Bride or Rent to Own, Russia's Females are Priced to Sell, Viagra in Porn, Ever Hard Miracle Pill or Triple X Overkill, High Voltage Kink, Electricity Turns Up the Jolts of Rough Sex, as well as 10 Sin Cinema Reviews, 26 Cartoons to Shame Santa, which sounds suspiciously similar to last year's issue, and 24 Chicks in a Gift Pack of Penetration and Pee. You can still buy physical copies of both magazines, 1998 goes for around $30, while you'll have to fork out $35 for 1999s, or you can buy a digital PDF copy for just $3.98 each, which I'm not going to do just in case my wife ever goes through my bank statements. As Augustus heads over to a table to have a read of his magazine, Murphy calls for the inmates to line up and starts to read them the riot act, saying that despite it being the holiday season and him trying to be nice, he sees garbage everywhere, the beds aren't getting made, turds are in the toilet, which if you're going to have a turd be anywhere, it's probably best it be in the toilet and he tells them no fucking more, and that cleanliness is next to godliness. Until such a time that he deems it up to his standards, Murphy says that he's confiscating all the skin mags, which infuriates Jazz no end. Which, considering Evan Seinfeld's future career, isn't a surprise, but more on that another time. With his pawn taken away, Augustus retires to his pod, but Adebisi pays him a visit, saying that this is exactly what he's talking about, as Adebisi asks what exactly is it that he's after asking if he's looking to start another riot, reasoning that all that will achieve is more death, particularly of black inmates. Adebisi claims that they are in fact the majority, and when Augustus points out that they don't have guns, Adebisi says some who wear the uniform are still their brothers, and might be willing to help. Augustus, taking his life into his own hands, calls Adebisi crazy, Adebisi slowly rising from his hunched position to stand tall, telling Augustus, you're either one of us, or one of them, and he produces the Hustler magazine from his back pocket, leaving it on Augustus' bed before leaving the pod. As Adebisi walks across M-City, Arif approaches and asks if it worked, Adebisi saying that he thinks so. I really like this scene between Adebisi and Augustus, Adewale and Harold both have charisma in spades, and I think this is the first time in a long time that they've had a scene between just the two of them, 
The only previous one that springs to mind was when they were filling out the conjugal visit forms back in series 1, so it's been quite a while since these two characters last interacted. Augustus heads out of his pod with his magazine in his mouth, something which proves to be his undoing as Murphy spots him with it, asking if he wants a trip to the hall. Augustus doesn't help his case however, ranting about how it's shit that Murphy has taken the magazines away, especially after Devlin already took away conjugals. With that, Murphy pushes Augustus' chair, saying that he's off to the hull, and we see Murphy tip him out of his chair once they get there, which was a right dick move on Murphy's part. It's the only time I've actually disliked him since he came on the show. At worst, this is a minor infraction from Augustus, but we heard earlier when Murphy was speaking to McManus that he feels like they've been forced into a position where they need to re-establish their position as the Alpha, something which could come back to haunt them if they're not careful. Back in MC, Adebisi is rallying his troops, asking how many more black inmates are going to be targeted before they all wake up, with Arif adding that they can't let what he describes as brutality go unchallenged quoting the Quran, saying that permission is given to those who fight because they have been wronged, and that God is able to give them victory. Standing off to the side, Saeed asks if Arif is going to finish the quote, calling the Quran a book of love, not hate, and it speaks to what is good in all of them because Allah knows no colour. He says that Arif is using the words to meet his own needs, and that he lived on the same streets as his former charge, and that he knows what prejudice tastes like. He admits that they must right the wrongs, but not in this way, saying that they need to understand their perceived enemy. Adabizi lets out a maniacal laugh at that idea, but quickly turns serious, saying that no white man can understand what it's like to be black, which I've got to admit is a fair point, but Saeed says that neither can they understand what it is to be white. Saeed tries to quote the Quran himself, but Adabizi interrupts him, and in a menacing whisper, tells him that he doesn't give a shit what the Quran says. Saeed asks what exactly does Adabizi give a shit about, Adabizi replying that he cares about justice, just like Saeed does, and then starts chanting set hill free, his new followers joining him in doing so, and we see that the inmates in Unit B are also chanting for Augustus' freedom. A dueling chant gathers pace as the white inmates chant shut the fuck up, as we cut to Leo addressing the staff informing them that the sort are ready to go, but for now he's decided to keep Oz in full lockdown for the immediate future, and ask them to be careful and ready for any possibility. Diane tells McManus that she can't go through this again and that she's going to take a vacation time, and if they won't let her then she'll quit. McManus tries to reason with her, but Diane is deadly serious, saying once again that she'll quit. Claire asks Murphy if he's afraid, Murphy admitting that he is, as Claire admits that she is too, which is probably the most human moment we've seen of her on the show so far. With the rest of the staff gone, Clayton approaches Leo saying that they can't hide behind the badge anymore, and that Leo has worked for them for years, caging in his own kind, and asks whether or not he ever feels like he's betrayed his people. Without hesitation, Leo tells him no, and that the men locked up in Oz are not his people, his people are the ones who obey the law. He tells Clayton to go home and that he's fired, this proving to be Leo's breaking point. Augustus narrates about God's great plan as we see Murphy wishing McManus a happy new year as they turn off the lights in M-City, which has the sort standing by on guard, as well as another of other inmates wishing each other a happy new year, 
Miguel trashing his cell, Hamid in the hospital, Keller and Beecher officially reconciling, and Arif and Saeed praying together before closing on Adebisi discovering that a gun has been left on his bed. As he looks out of his pod he sees Clayton, holding his hand over his heart before departing down the stairs, leaving Adebisi to practice his aim. I can understand Clayton leaving the gun paying off the scene with Adebisi earlier on, but there are massive plot holes here. Why has Clayton seemingly been allowed to finish out the day after Leah told him that he was fired, and why is he suddenly back in M-City? He was reassigned to the library ages ago. A way around this could have been to have Clayton hand Adebisi a book in the library and then discover the gun inside once he's back in his pod, but you'd still have to overlook Clayton still finishing his shift despite being fired. So far from being a good reveal, this just leaves a shitload of questions and problems. It makes absolutely no sense. Augustus narrates about being on the precipice as we enter the new millennium, and wishing us all a happy new year as the credits roll to end series three. A bunch of men sit in cells on the brink of a new year, a new century, a new millennium, a thousand years. They stare into the future, and all they see is themselves in those same cells. Black or white, here we are, on the precipice. We either hang on, or we fall off. Together, or separately. It's our choice. It's up to us. It's up to you and me. Happy New Year! So there you go, episode 8 out of time, and with it, series 3. I spoke last episode about how I felt like that was the series finale proper, and having watched this episode again in the meantime, I still feel that way, as I feel like this acted more like a kind of epilogue to that. But I also think this was, on the whole, a good episode to end the series, in that it laid a lot of the groundwork for series 4. Series 1 and 2 both ended with cliffhanger endings, making you want to come back, whereas this one is a lot less ambiguous and clearly shows where we're heading with the impending race war. In addition to that, we've seen a lot of relationships re-established with Keller and Beecher back together, as well as Saeed seemingly back with the Muslims right at the end there, but we're also seeing alliances forming that we would have never had before, especially with Adebisi's impending revolution. Shirley may have been carted off to the Connolly Institute for Psychiatric Testing, but Miguel is probably the worst off in terms of the inmates, or at least those who haven't died, in that he's wound up back in solitary once again, seemingly with no reason to be released again in the future. As for the staff, they are really starting to feel the pressure, with Diane threatening to quit, Sister Pete in the process of leaving the convent, Leo looks like he's at the end of his tether, and McManus is having to defend himself against a second accusation of sexual harassment. The only one who still seems to have his wits about him is Murphy, who is at least trying to keep the control in M-City, but in order to do that he needs the support around him, which he just doesn't have at the moment. Perhaps some new blood coming in could help him steer the ship, we'll just have to wait and see. Get the fuck out of my office. We got spoilt rotten by Oz at Christmas time as we had four scenes cut from this episode. 
First off, we see Ray and Pete distributing Christmas gifts to the inmates currently in the hospital. Ray looking like a right pillock in his Santa hat, but credit to him for at least getting into the spirit. Pete gives Nikolai a present, which surely must be offensive considering he's Jewish, as Ray gives Schillinger his gift, Schillinger complaining about not being able to open it due to being strapped down on the bed. Ray reasons that he did nearly start another riot, which Schillinger calls horseshit and, like a little kid, says that he started it, as we pan across the Beecher who's in the bed opposite. Whose idea was it to put mortal enemies in a position where they have to stare at each other all day? Surely they could have done some hospital feng shui to keep both men happy. Beecher asks Pete about the rumours of leaving the convent because of Keller, but she assures him that it's a choice of her own doing. The scene finishes with Gloria telling Pete that Shirley has requested to meet with her, something which seems to surprise Pete as she's never met with Shirley before. That would have led into the scene which was kept into the episode, and the second scene that got cut likely came later on once Shirley was transferred to the Conley Institute. Diane, Murphy, Ray and Pete are discussing Shirley claiming to be the Virgin Mother, with Murphy joking about Richie Hanlon being the father, which you might have got away with then, but not so much now. Ray gets up to leave to go do some last-minute Christmas shopping, with Diane saying that she'll see him tomorrow, which is Christmas Day, saying that she sent her daughter to spend it with cousins in Vermont. They all go their separate ways wishing each other a Merry Christmas, as Pete tells Diane that the most difficult thing with dealing with the insane is that they're so sure that what they do is right, Diane reckoning that the insane are lucky because the rest of us don't get to be that sure. The third scene starts with Ryan talking to Glenn Shoup, who we've only really seen in the background up until this point. He does turn up again and gets a bit more fleshed out in future episodes, but here Ryan's asking Glenn about his time following the Grateful Dead around on tour, and how he sold drugs to support himself. Ryan asks why he stopped, with Glenn saying that when Jerry Garcia died, the band's frontman who died of a heart attack in 1995, he murdered his girlfriend, something which differs from his eventual crime flashback. Ryan then takes a seat with the rest of the MC crew, who are watching the Christmas Yule Log on the TV, which Rebido seems to be really enjoying, but is sending Augustus to sleep. Boosmalis comes over asking for the channel to be changed to Miss Sally's schoolyard, and we find out that Miss Sally has actually visited us and given Boosmalis a new cap, something which he is then gifted to Cyril, which was really nice of him. We do see that cap in the episode, in the scene between Cyril and Ryan before the fight, but you can't really tell because it's quite far away from the camera. Ryan says that he can't believe that Miss Sally actually visited, Miguel joking about how she didn't run at the sight of Boosmalis, with Boos Malice saying that it was her, and that they spoke about a lot of things. Chucky tells them to shut up because the show's on, but he soon realises that he's seen this one before, Rebido saying that it must be a rerun. Jazz says that they saved the new episodes for Sweeps Week to pull in better ad rates, Ryan asking what Jazz knows about Sweeps, Jazz saying that he used to dabble in the entertainment industry. Good meta gag right there with Evan Seinfeld's music career and a bit of foreshadowing for what he'll do after the show ends, but more on that another time. Sweeps Week isn't really something that we have here in the UK because of how the TV industry works compared to the US, so this was lost on me a little bit. Augustus mentions that he's heard about the station maybe cancelling Miss Sally, Bruce Mal is saying that they can't do that, as Cyril wonders what will happen to the puppets, and Miguel reckoning that she'll have to go back to making her career on her back. 
Busmalis tries to organise a letter-writing campaign to save the show, but the others don't seem to share his enthusiasm, so it looks like he'll have to do it himself. The last scene sees Saeed meeting with McManus requesting a meeting with Leo, but he can't tell McManus why he wants it. McManus claims that Saeed never learns, alluding to Saeed's supposed special treatment, but Saeed tells him that he has learned and admits that he has been an irritant in the past and apologises for that. McManus asks if Saeed is seeking his forgiveness, asking whether or not it's Saeed's New Year's resolution, but Saeed pleads for a meeting with Leo, swearing on everything that he holds holy that he has no secret agenda, and that he needs to speak to him for the benefit of everyone. McManus quips that he thought that Saeed got out of the saviour business, Saeed asking McManus to trust him, with McManus asking, why nobody fucking trusts me, and refuses Saeed's request. A real mixture of scenes, the only one I'd really make a case for including would have been Pete and Ray giving out the gifts, mainly because everyone should have seen Ray in his Christmas hat. The staff meeting scene doesn't really add a whole lot and includes Murphy's joke, which hasn't aged well. The scene around the TV also doesn't add a whole lot and would actually cause a plot hole for a future storyline if included. And the last scene between McManus and Saeed was a retread of previous hostilities and doesn't really add anything new to the relationship between the two of them. Saeed could have easily just gone to Murphy to request the meeting and it also shows McManus to be a bit petty but I imagine that these were cut for time more than anything else. With a death toll of one for this episode, it's time to say goodbye to Juan Carlos Hernandez, aka Carlo Ricardo. After leaving Oz, Juan appeared in the debut season of Third Watch on NBC at the end of 1999, and in 2000 appeared in the movie Dinner Rush, which also featured appearances from Oz co-stars Kirk Acevedo and Mark Margolis, and the TV movie Perfect Murder, Perfect Town, John Bennett and the City of Boulder. While his acting credits have been mostly for minor roles, with credits for shows such as Law and Order, The Jury and Law and Order Special Victims Unit, as well as the movies In America, Happy End and Against the Ropes, Juan also transitioned to working behind the camera in 2009, directing, writing and editing the films Waking Up in Astoria and Statico, both of which he also appeared in. Alongside his production work, Juan also continued to act on camera throughout the 2010s with credits for shows such as The Good Wife, The Blacklist, House of Cards, Elementary and Shades of Blue. In 2018 he appeared in the recurring role of Coach Mario in Pinkalicious and Peterific on PBS Kids, while in 2019 he returned to production, directing and editing the shorts A Simple Ad and directing, editing and writing the short film Clown 345. In 2020, Juan appeared as Guillermo in his latest short film, Ronnie and the Pursuit of Elusive Bliss, and his latest project at the time of recording is credited as 2021's A Mouthful of Air, currently listed as being in post-production. With Carlo dead, it stands to reason that this is also the final appearance of Margarita Ricardo, played by Natasha Diaz. Postars Natasha appeared on stage at the National Theatre in Washington in the 2002 run of the musical Man of La Mancha, playing the part of Antonia. Natasha returned to TV in 2002 with a minor role in Law and Order, while in 2004 she appeared in The Jury on Fox, and the following year appeared in Law and Order Special Victims Unit during the show's sixth season, along with Oz co-stars Christopher Mullerney and B.D. Wong. Appearing mostly in minor roles on TV, Natasha earned two further credits for different roles on Law and Order in both 2008 and 2010, 
as well as an appearance in the debut series of Showtime's Nurse Jackie, more on that in a few moments, with her most recent acting credit coming for 2018's Crutches, playing the role of Mindy Lorenzo. Away from the screen, Natasha has appeared both on and off Broadway in productions such as Tick Tick Boom, earning an LA Ovation Award nomination for Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Bright Lights Big City, The Best Is Yet To Come, and The Cape Man, as well as appearing in regional theatre, many staged at the Signature Theatre in Arlington, West Virginia, in productions such as Zorro and Othello, and earned critical plaudits for runs in shows such as The Three Penny Opera, Chicago, where she played Velma Kelly and earned a St. Louis Critics Award nomination, Rooms, receiving another Helen Hayes Award nomination, and Jacques Brel, winning the Helen Hayes Award for Best Actress in a Musical. Her biggest success on stage, however, came for her portrayal as Anita in regional and national tours of West Side Story, a role previously played by Rita Marino on film in 1961. For her role, Natasha won the Jeff Award for Best Supporting Actress in a Musical in 1996 prior to appearing on Oz, and won the Kevin Klein Award in 2006 for the same role after appearing in the show's national tour. These days, Natasha teaches through the Signature Theatre Workshop, teaching on coaches such as creating a character through text. The Oz One and Done Club gained a new member in Sadia Khan, played by Michael Hyatt. Following appearance on Oz, Michael had a number of recurring roles on TV on shows such as The West Wing, The Wire, where she appeared as Brianna Barksdale, The Kill Point, the second season of HBO's True Detective, otherwise known as The Bad One, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, Ray Donovan, and Snowfall, as well as on film in movies such as Washington Heights, Mississippi Damned, the 2009 remake of Fame, The Trials of Kate McCall, Nightcrawler, and Four Good Days. At the time of recording, her latest credit is listed as being for the 2021 thriller The Little Things, listed as completed and awaiting release. This episode also sees the final appearance of background Irish gang member Philip Featherston, played by Brett Gillen. Since leaving Oz, Brett has appeared in minor roles on TV, with her recurring roles in the 2013 Japanese miniseries Miss Pilot, as well as a number of short films, his most recent credit coming for 2017's Screen Cowboy. According to his IMDb biography, so take this with a pinch of salt, he currently lives with his wife in Paris, France. Guest director Barbara Koppel followed up this episode with the documentary A Conversation with Gregory Peck, which was released in October 1999, and in the early 2000s released the documentaries My Generation and The Hamptons. In 2005, Barbara released Havoc, her first and to date only feature film, as well as Bearing Witness, for which she won a Golden Eagle Award at the Cines. In 2006, Barbara directed Shut Up and Sing, a documentary on the controversy surrounding the country music trio, the Dixie Chicks, and in 2010 directed The House of Steinbrenner as part of ESPN's 30 for 30 series of films, and also directed Running From Crazy and Miss Sharon Jones in 2013 and 2015 respectively. Barbara's most recent directing credit is listed as 2019's Desert One, while at the time of recording she is currently filming the TV documentary series The Supermodels. However, and although we'll hear her voice again in the future, this episode marks the final appearance of Edie Falco playing the part of Diane Whittlesley, and one of the biggest departures since the start of the show. As I mentioned previously, Diane's presence is noticeably reduced during this third series due to Edie's other commitments both on screen 
and on the Broadway stage. In 1999 alone, she earned film credits for Judy Berlin, appearing as the title character, Stringer, and Random Hearts, as well as appearing on the Broadway stage from June 1998 to October 1999 at the John Golden Theatre in the Michael Mayer-directed Sideman, replacing Wendy McKenna in the role of Terry, a role which she also played in the video release of the show, which earned Edie a Drama Desk Award nomination, as well as a Theatre World Award win. Edie returned to the Broadway stage from July 2002 until the end of the year, playing the role of Frankie in Frankie and Johnny in the Claire de Lune at the Belasco Theatre, starring alongside Stanley Tucci. Life imitated art for a brief period after the show closed, when the stars started a romantic relationship together, splitting in March 2004. During that time, Edie was diagnosed with breast cancer, but would make a full recovery the following year. Screen credits for Edie in 2003 through 2004 include a TV adaptation of the movie Fargo, as well as one episode of Will & Grace on NBC, as well as Family of the Year appearing alongside Danny DeVito. Edie returned to the Broadway stage once again in November 2004 until January 2005, appearing as Jessie Cates in Night Mother at the Royale Theatre. Her final appearance on the Broadway stage came in 2011 for The House of Blue Leaves at the Walter Kerr Theatre, playing the role of Banana Shaughnessy, and for which she received a Tony Award nomination, as well as winning a Drama Desk Award. Landing the recurring role of Celeste Cunningham in 2007 on NBC's 30 Rock, Edie also earned main cast roles in the web series Horace and Pete in 2016, and in 2017 for Law & Order miniseries True Crime The Menendez Murders. Despite poor ratings and lukewarm reviews from critics, Edie was nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award for her role as Leslie Abramson. Her last TV role came for the CBS police drama Tommy, where she also served as co-executive producer, appearing as Chief Abigail Thomas for 12 episodes until the show's cancellation. Of course, though, Edie is most famous for her roles as Carmela Soprano in The Sopranos on HBO and as the titular nurse Jackie on Showtime. Commitments on The Sopranos are ultimately what led to Edie's Oz departure, but with two Golden Globe wins, three Primetime Emmys and three individual Screen Actors Guild Awards, winning one of each in 2000 alone, as well as award wins from the Television Critics Association, the Satellite Awards, the Gold Derby Awards and the Online Film and Television Association in a show revered by many as the greatest in the history of television and one of the most influential artistic works of all time, it's hard to argue that the move wasn't the right choice for her. And her portrayal as Tony Soprano's long-suffering wife and matriarch of the Soprano family is a key component of that show, and deserving of every bit of praise she's received. Edie was a guest recently on Michael Imperioli and Steve Sharipa's Talking Sopranos podcast, which is well worth taking the time to listen to. After The Sopranos concluded in 2007, Edie followed up a success landing the lead role of Nurse Jackie on Showtime, debuting on the network in 2009 and running for a total of seven seasons. The show once again received critical praise for Edie, and earned her another Primetime Emmy Award, another Online Film and Television Critics Award, as well as four Golden Globe nominations. Edie also received four Screen Actors Guild Award nominations across the course of the series, taking her nominations at those shows across both Nurse Jackie and The Sopranos to a total of 22, making Edie the most nominated television actress in the history of the awards. 
Blady's career on film isn't as recognised as her TV one, she is set to appear in the next two sequels to James Cameron's Avatar, playing the role of General Ardmore, set for release in 2022 and 2024 respectively. At the time of recording, her most recent film credit is for the movie El Tonto, listed as being in post-production. So, the roll call of the dead for series 3 stands at 10, which is actually down from the 15 we had listed for series 2, a decrease of 33.4% and at an average of 1.25 deaths per episode, down from series 2's 1.9. So clearly something has been done right this series, possibly due to there being no riot deaths to distort the numbers. Those that died in this series include... Number 1. Officer Karl Metzger. Killed by Beecher, his throat slashed and bleeding to death as revenge for the gym attack by Keller and Schillinger. Number 2. Officer Diane Whittlesley's mum. Passed away off-screen following a long illness. Number 3. Malcolm Coyle. Murdered in his cell by the Italians. Stabbed repeatedly in the back as a message to the homeboys. Number 4. Richie Hanlon murdered by Nikolai Stanislavski in the MC showers. His throat slashed as revenge for the Alexander Vogel murder, a crime which Richie didn't commit. Number 5, Laura Wangler, murdered on order of her husband Kenny for cheating with Number 6, Ronnie Smith, murdered on the orders of Kenny for cheating with his wife. Number 7, Andrew Schillinger, overdosed on heroin, provided by his father via Officer Lepresti during a stay in the hole. Number 8, William Cudney, murdered in his bed by Yuri Kasijin, stabbed in the neck. Number 9, Antonio Napa, murdered in his cell by Nat Ginsberg, smothered to death following a night of celebration following the completion of his tell-all book. And number 10, Carlo Ricardo, killed by Miguel whilst trying to murder Miguel on the orders of El Cid. As for the show overall, Series 3's IMDb rating averages out at an 8.5, up slightly from Series 2's 8.3. So as with the previous two series averages, they're all kind of floating around the same area. I had high hopes coming into this series as I had quite fond memories of it, but there were moments where it felt like it dragged in certain areas. There are certain instances where you have to completely overlook things, such as Cyril and Chucky fighting without protective head equipment, massive plot holes where a character either disappears off the face of the earth or reappears in a place they haven't had access to for a long time just to advance the plot, as well as storylines that have either sudden endings, such as Dr. Garvey being a back-alley abortionist, or sudden escalations, such as Shirley having satanic delusions. But when it's good... It's very good, and we've seen a bunch of new alliances form and new feuds develop, most of which have had the slow burn treatment. The boxing tournament, which ran across the majority of this series, was a ton of fun and completely different to anything we'd had on the show before, and the series finished with a clear direction of where the next series is heading with the Race War storyline, rather than airing an ambiguous cliffhanger. Overall, I'd say an 8.5 is perhaps a little too kind of a score, because, as I said, there are certain points that just didn't live up to how I remembered, as well as being flawed in a number of ways, while key moments such as Adebisi revealing as returning to Adebisi Classic were as good now as when I first saw it, so I'm going to give this series a 7.5 overall. 
While the show itself didn't win any further awards for this third series, Tom Fontana was recognised at the Casting Society of America Awards, winning their Golden Apple Award. The show, as well as specific actors, were nominated at a number of other ceremonies, including the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People Image Awards, where Adewale Akinoe Agbaje was nominated for Outstanding Actor in a Drama Series, as well as Rita Moreno being nominated for Outstanding Actress in a Drama Series, with the show being nominated for Outstanding Drama Series. The show was also nominated at the Satellite Awards, where it was nominated for Best Television Series in Drama, as well as Eamon Walker receiving a nomination for Best Performance by an Actor in a Series for Drama. The fifth episode in this series, US Mail, was nominated at the Writers Guild of America Awards for Best Episodic Drama, while Alexa L. Fogel was once again nominated at the Casting Society of America Awards in the Best Casting for TV Drama Episodic category. Rita Marino and Lauren Velez were both nominated in the Outstanding Actress in a Drama Series category at the American Latino Media Awards, while at the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation Awards, where the show was nominated in the Outstanding TV Drama Series category, Lee Tergerson and Christopher Maloney attended together, and even made out together at the podium. So with Tom Fontana's win, that takes the show's award haul to a total of six wins across the first three series. My episode MVP, I'm going to give it to Sister Pete for doing the right thing in trying to seek medical help for Shirley, and especially for the way in which she stood up to Governor Devlin, who saw Shirley's request simply as a way of making a number of problems disappear. Pete has a proper set of balls on her at times, and isn't afraid to call someone out on their bullshit. While she might be questioning herself and her position within the church, her ethics are still intact with regards to being a good psychiatrist and looking out not only for Shirley's well-being, but also that of her unborn child. So for those reasons, Sister Pete takes the episode MVP. As for the MVP of the series, and despite a slight overreaction to Augustus getting his skin mag back, I'm giving this award to Officer Sean Murphy. Since arriving at Oz, he has in many ways been a calming influence in M-City, arriving with no previous agenda or affiliation to anyone other than McManus, a man who he clearly respects a great deal. Much like McManus, he takes the time to study the inmates' history and his understanding to their individual situations, and as a result is able to make more informed decisions and assess their impact on the unit overall. Unlike McManus, however, but more like Leo, he may not be a straight arrow all the time, such as overlooking Ryan's blatant cheating upon discovering him in the gym, but his decisions are clearly weighted on what their best case scenario will be long term, which is best for everyone in the grand scheme of things, so for those reasons, Officer Sean Murphy wins the Series 3 MVP. So, that is everything for Series 3 of Inside Oz, but if you need to listen back to any of the previous episodes, you can do so by heading on over to Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castbox, Overcast, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. All of those places have everything that we have covered on the podcast so far, as well as the Outside Oz bonus episodes. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, Leave a five-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast, and if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, 
you can email the show at insideoutspodcast at gmail.com or get in touch through social media on both Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at insideoutspodcast. With Series 3 in the books, we're going to have a bit of fun next time round on what will be Outside Oz number 5. I haven't quite decided exactly what that episode will cover, but I'm hoping to get it out in time for Christmas, much like we have done the last two years. So subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss it. I'm going to close out this episode with more of Max Feinstein's awesome rock rendition of the Oz theme. Go check him out on social media on the links in the description for this episode. But until next time, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everyone.